BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show here on a Friday, March 30th. Folks, my name is Peter Ogbert. I am sitting in for Bill Press today. Uh, don't worry, though, we have lots of great guests who are going to join us. Uh, Jack Jenkins from the Religion News Service, Alexi McCammon from Axios. And Emily Atkin from the New Republic will all be in studio today. And gosh, I couldn't be more excited about it. And I couldn't be more excited to be here with you to talk about the news of the day, as nightmarish as it may be. Uh, (laughs) Yesterday was one of those days where Donald Trump sort of got the news cycle back and was out there uh, uh, taking all kinds of credit for the success of Roseanne Barr's new TV show, which, ugh... He was on the road talking about infrastructure again. Ugh. Uh, but we're gonna make we're gonna make it through. We're gonna get through today's show, and I appreciate you joining us. By the way, it's it's Easter weekend. We're on Easter weekend already. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm a bad father or I just don't care very much. But like, I just don't get into the Easter thing. Ray, you have a, you have a little baby. I do. Um, I mean, we're doing some Easter stuff. Like, we're having a brunch tomorrow with family, and we're going to dye eggs. Yeah? Yeah. All right, that's fun. See, the egg thing is fun at the age that your baby is now. I mean, she's tiny, so she can't really do it. It's going to be me doing it with my nephews. But but, that's, but still, like, she can get involved a little bit. A little bit, that. yeah. Like, yeah. it's not going to be like she's going to be gorging herself on candy like my kids no. would do. But here's the thing. Uh, a new study came out from the World Health Organization uh, how much sugar is in your child's Easter basket? Are you giving raisins to Grand Magnus? This okay, week? we don't do Easter baskets. Well, there you go. We, so there's we, zero sugar like, in your children's. We'll Easter do basket. like a, like <laughs> an Easter treat. Like first of all, the king of of most candies, Halloween or otherwise, is the Reese's peanut butter egg. I w- my heart almost dropped for a second because I thought you were going to say Cadbury cream eggs, which are trash. No, 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 no they're the worst candy that you could possibly get. Cadbury trash. cream eggs are horrendous. They are horrendous. They are. Don't give them to your kids. No, they're terrible. But the Reese's peanut butter peanut butter egg, uh-huh. or the Reese's peanut butter egg, how is it different than just a Reese's peanut butter cup? Uh, 
I'm glad you asked. Okay. So the 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 chocolate is a little bit thicker. Okay. The chocolate walls are a little bit thicker, and you've got more ratio. You got more room for peanut butter because of the oblong shape. It's it's more it's a higher concentration. I'll have to try one, but I think that the ratio is pretty perfected as it is. But actually, you know, the shallow ones I like less than the squatter smaller ones. So maybe I would like the egg. You like know. the egg. Trust maybe. me. All right, I'll try. Trust me, you'd like the egg. Well, here's the thing though. If you are giving your kids the traditional like overflowing basket of Easter candy, there are 900 grams of sugar. Oh no. In the traditional Easter basket. By the way, what could you also give your kids that have that much sugar in it? Just for a little perspective, 90 chocolate chip cookies, 90 chocolate chip cookies, or 23 cans of soda. Did they say what's included in this average Easter basket? Jelly beans. Okay. Marshmallow chicks, which are like the yeah. peeps. Uh, peanut butter eggs. Okay. And like the the hard shell Hearts. Like the well, like the eggs, like there's the it's oh, just it's just milk right. chocolate surrounded with the chocolate shell, which are trash. I don't mind those actually. When I was little, I always looked forward to that because it came in like a mini egg carton and they looked like eggs in an egg carton. It was so cute. Trash. <laughs> they are trash. They break your teeth. They're so hard. Uh anyway, just maybe give your kids I don't know, some salad. <laughs> or, or, or like, or how about this? Uh, some fruit. Or like one peanut butter egg. A hard-boiled egg next to a peanut butter <laughs> egg? <laughs> yes, exactly. Just give him some egg whites. <laughs> What's wrong with you? It's the Bill Press Show. Stay tuned. On TV and online. This is the Bill Press Show. It is the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today on this Friday, March 30th. Thank you for tuning in. No matter where you're listening, viewing, consuming, wherever you are, uh, we thank you for doing it. Of course, you can listen to us on your favorite progressive talk radio station. Uh, shout out to our friends at WCPT in Chicago, which, by the way, Bill will be there next week to talk about his new book. Uh, details uh, on our Twitter feed, our website, and also uh, the WCPT. Check out the, their feed. Uh, we're also at Free Speech TV if you're watching us. Uh, it's a great way to, to get the show. And remember, we have our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Also, if you are uh, someone who listens religiously, even if you are someone who listens to both hours of the show in Chicago or Asheville or uh, Indiana Talks, which, which uh, wherever, you're, wherever you're listening, however you're pulling it together, we have our podcast, uh, which has stuff that you cannot hear on those radio stations. There's some pre-show stuff. There's some before the we get into the meat of the show that we we kick some stuff around and you can really only get that listen to that on the podcast so go check it out uh the bill press show in itunes or uh wherever you get your podcasts we're there for you uh for example today we were talking a little bit about easter easter is coming up by the way i it's this is sort of like the big holiday 
for uh, Christians, right? Because this is like the thing that separates you from other religions, right? You believe that Jesus uh, came back, right? I'm, I'm not a Christian. I was steeped in it as a child. But here's the thing. <laughs> I guess it really doesn't matter because the Pope has come out and said, hell doesn't exist. You know, I love this Pope more and more and more, and I 100% agree with him. Well, I'm glad that the story came out because we're going to be talking to our friend Jack Jenkins from the Religion News Service uh, in a little while, and I want to get his take on it. Uh, What he says is, uh, I'm reading directly from uh, cnsnews.com, quote, Pope Francis claims that hell does not exist and condemned souls just disappear. This is a denial of the 2,000-year-old teaching of the Catholic Church about the reality of hell and the eternal existence of the soul. Now, the thing is, like, having grown up in a Southern Baptist church, everything that I did that was good and pure as a child was solely so that I would not go to hell. (laughs) <laughs> like yes. that's what they teach you. You got to. It's like it's like the boogeyman, right? Behave, or you're gonna. God's not going to save your soul, and you're gonna go to hell. I amend my former statement, though. I do not believe that "quote unquote" bad souls disappear. Yeah, sure. I think you're reincarnated. Do you really? I do. Well, that's a whole separate topic. But, but, like, if you've spent your whole life going through the religion racket because you're scared of going to hell, the Pope. Maybe the best authority that lives and walks among us is saying, eh, I wouldn't sweat it. <laughs> You're not gonna, there's, there's no hell. There's nothing to be scared of. But see, I love this <laughs> argument because it gets rid of this punitive God. And instead, it's like, be good because then you have access to an all-loving God. Yes. Yes. Now, as I mentioned, I am not religious. Because, because, seriously... Uh, all when I was growing up, the only thing that we were taught was the putative God. Like, mm. God will punish you, and we should be God-fearing. Mm. And, like, the construct of how so many things are set up among the family come directly from that weird teaching that you better behave yourself or this sky principle <laughs> is going to get mad at you and and, and like, put you in detention. I had such a bizarre religious path. So I grew up um, going to a mixture of public school and then Catholic school. Ooh. Um, And so I was confirmed in a bap, not in a Baptist, baptized and confirmed Catholic. Uh huh. Um, But my high school that I went to was very non traditional Catholic. Many of the teachers um, were very socially liberal, supported gay marriage. did not believe that you should be excommunicated if you are divorced. All kinds of like socially progressive things. So, which did, which should not be quite so radical, but within the church, it's fairly radical. It's fairly radical. But see, I was presented with this differing view of Catholicism that you could still fundamentally be Catholic, and that these uh, conservative teachings weren't central to the church, right. which is so sure. different from how the church is typically presented. Yeah, look, I mean, I, the, the way that church was presented to me and to uh, a, a lot of people I grew up with was basically like, if you're not yeah. good, you will your soul will be damned for all of eternity. And look, like, I totally bought that hook, line, and sinker mm-hmm. for a while. And uh, like I said, I, I don't know the last time I set foot into a church. I, I, 
I, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. So I'm curious, how come you still celebrate Easter then? Is it just more like a cultural? Thing? I don't really celebrate Easter. Right. We don't really do the Easter bath. We don't do. We don't. We we don't. Like but, it's not a thing. But you do Easter eggs. No. Yes, you do. You just said you did peanut butter Easter eggs. Oh, those don't count as Easter eggs. <laughs> no, no, no. We don't dye Easter eggs, do that whole right. thing. But I will eat a peanut butter Easter egg. I mean, you can get on board sort of with, like, the pagan side of Easter as just being spring revival, right? Yeah, sure. Like, I do I do appreciate that part of it. But, like, I eat chocolate-covered matzah, too, but I'm not Jewish. Right. Like, I, I'm in it for the food, right? Like, Easter, lamb, ham, like bring it on, man. I'm all for it. Like, I don't care. I'm pretty, I like, I, I don't buy the religion aspect of it all. But, like, any chance to celebrate anything with food, I'm there. So, peanut butter eggs, it's a yes for it's me. It's a yes? It's a yes for me all I day long. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that you have to believe in Easter to celebrate peanut butter eggs. Listen to her. She's very wise. <laughs> very wise words. Uh, but, by the way, on the religion front, uh, one of my least favorite people on God's great earth is Laura Ingram, who is on Fox News. And I just, for the life of me, I cannot understand why there are people in the media and people, like every, I had a friend of mine who is a conservative, uh, talk smack about the Parkland shooting victims. And particularly the thing that Laura Ingram is in trouble over is David Hogue, uh, who you've seen. Uh, he's been out there. Uh, he's one of the leading voices, uh, along with Emma Gonzalez and lots of other really sharp, smart, educated students. Uh, and there has been a story that's been kicking around the right-wing blogosphere about how David Hogue uh, has not been accepted to the college of his choice. And so Laura Ingram said on her show and on Twitter uh, and uh, tweet, uh, tweeting out a story about how David Hogue rejected by four colleges to which he applied and whines about it. That's the headline. David Hogue rejected by four colleges to which he applied and whined about it. Uh, she also said he was dinged by UCLA because he had a 4.1 GPA, totally predictable given the acceptance rates. So people immediately swung into action saying, like, look, for all this talk that Republicans immediately jump to when anybody that's under the age of 30 gets attacked because of their conservative views, because they're saying, oh, kids are off limits, kids are off limits. So David Hogue, who is a high school student is getting beat up by a Fox News host because his grades are a, he has a 4.1 GPA. Laura Ingram, who every appearance that she makes wears a cross around her neck to let everybody know what a godly and Christian woman she is. Maybe bad souls do disappear. Maybe bad souls do disappear, Ray. Uh, she immediately... Um, was met with uh, a pushback from a lot of different people. David Hogue himself actually tweeted about this uh, on on Wednesday earlier in the week. He says, he tweeted, pick a number one through 12 and contact the company that, uh, that I've listed. And he lists 12 different companies, Sleep Number, ATT, Bayer, Rocket Mortgage, Liberty Mutual, Arby's, TripAdvisor, Nestle, Hulu, Wafer, a, lot of, a couple of different others. And it says, these are Laura Ingram's uh, uh, advertisers, 
Call them and let them know that you are pissed off that she is picking on a high school student that watched his best friends get slaughtered by a weapon of war while he was supposed to be at school. That's who Laura Ingram is. That's who Laura Ingram is. Okay? That's the goblin that she is. So, immediately she faces a boycott. Immediately some of her her uh, advertisers drop her. And she tweeted yesterday, on reflection, in the spirit of Holy Week, which gag me with an entire place setting. That is disgusting. But let me, let me, let me read the tweet. On reflection, in the spirit of Holy Week, ugh, I apologize for any upset or hurt my tweet caused him or any of the brave victims in Parkland. For the record, I believe my show was the first to feature David immediately after that horrific shooting and even noted how poised he was given the tragedy. Oh, thank you, Laura. That's so nice of you. As always, he's welcome to return to the show anytime for a productive discussion. Grotesque. Like... I am, I would, if I wasn't on camera right now, I'd be vomiting everywhere. Like, just disgusting. Just disgusting. What is wrong with these people? And, like, look, David Hogue is not out there saying, take everybody's guns away. Let's get rid of the Second Amendment. Like, it's, it's not, he's not some radical. He's out there saying, like, look, we got a problem and you got to fix it. We've got a problem, and you, the politicians, you've got to fix it. And if you want to hide behind the fact that this is really hard, where? This is a really hard problem to solve, where? Then you should get out of office, because that's the reason you're in office, is so you can fix these problems. I don't think that he's some revolutionary or reactionary, this David Hogg. He's out there just saying, like, look. We've got to have some sort of solution here. And if you can't do it, God damn it, we'll find somebody who will. You know, But yeah, let's mock him for his 4.1 GPA, by the way, is not that shabby. <laughs> okay. First of all, a 4.1 GPA, typically, you can only get it if you're taking advanced placement or IB courses, which are college level. Um, yeah. And you get straight A's, by the way. Um, secondly, yes! I never had a 4.1 GPA. Never in my life. Go ahead. Okay. But secondly, something that is admirable about these Parkland kids is that they actually have made this a nonpartisan issue. Yes! They never once put this at the feet of the GOP or praise the way the Democrats are handling this or really attack either party. They've made it and kept it completely nonpartisan as a means of reaching as many people as possible. Yep. That this is not about whether you are a Republican or a Democrat or somewhere in between. It's about kids being mowed down with weapons of war in a place where they are meant to be learning. That's there has all never, that it is about. There has never been a school shooting where someone walked in and said, quick show of hands, who here is a Democrat? Okay? I don't care if you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, if you voted for Jill Stein, if you're a socialist, I don't care where you fall in the political spectrum. If you you should be completely 
freaked out yes. at what we've done to this country and what we've done to our children because of our drunkenness on guns. Yes. I think that Emma Gonzalez actually said it best during the CNN town hall when she asked um, the NRA spokesperson Dana Loesch a question. And Dana, of course, just gave her sort of this runaround yeah. non-answer. Yeah. And then Emma just simply responds, I just want you to know that we're going to protect your children in a way that you won't. Yeah. That, I mean, that's heavy. That's heavy. It has nothing to do with politics. It has no. everything to do with the fact that Sandy Hook happened. Yeah. Yeah. Tiny babies were killed by guns and we're not doing anything we're about it. We're not doing it. a damn thing about it. And so, look, you, you if you find the kids from Parkland annoying, fine, whatever. I think it says a lot more about you than it does about the actual issue. But, like... We've got to address this problem. We can't keep running from this problem just because it's a hard, like the solutions that we may uh, have to deal with are hard. Uh, It's something that's got to be dealt with. And we've ignored it for so long. And this next generation, they're not going to ignore it. And that, that makes me pretty happy that like, we might not see it next year, year after that, or the next election cycle or whatever, but it's coming. It's coming. And, and and I don't think that there are a lot of people out there that's saying, like, look, I'm one of the people that says take all the guns. I don't care. I don't, I don't, I don't care if you have a gun or not. Take them all. I, mean, I really don't care. But I, none of these students are saying that. They're just like, look, we've got to figure this out. We shouldn't have automatic weapons in the hands of, frankly, anybody, but s- certainly people who have a history of problems. We just have to figure this out. By the way, uh, we're on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Joe Howard says, I want someone to ask Laura Ingram, what if it were not Holy Week? Would your capacity to apologize exist? Uh, Joe, it's a very good question. The answer, of course, is no, because Laura Ingram can only hide behind that cross that she has hanging around her neck. These people are goblins, just total goblins. I have a real problem with people using uh, religion and God as a way to strike fear into people's hearts, as a way to advance their own political agenda. Yeah. Um, Just don't even get me started on that. But, you know, on the topic of Laura Ingram and attacking these Parkland kids and David especially, I know that we wanted to talk about Roseanne. I did want to get there. No, I do want to get there. Uh, Because I mentioned yesterday uh, during the show that Roseanne had huge numbers on the reboot of her show. Now, Ray, let me ask you, because you're you're younger than I am. Do you remember the Roseanne TV show, or, or, or are you familiar with it? I do. I liked it, actually, when I was little. I mean, I'm sure that most of it went over my head, but I do remember Fair. watching it and thinking it was funny. Yeah, so Roseanne Barr, um, I think, got a... Uh, made a name for herself back in the 90s, 80s, 90s for being a a shock comic, right? And for being a female shock comic, which is something that a lot of people hadn't seen before. And the Roseanne show, I think, was not crazy. I think it was a good show. I think it showed a lot of people, like, it was a a, a comedy, a situation comedy centered on, um, you know, a working class family, had a lot of a lot of their own problems and all that type of stuff. So anyway, they, they rebooted it. They brought it back. So Roseanne uh, had the debut of her show, and it had 18 million views. That's how many people watched it live uh, when it came back. 18 million viewers. 
Now, in case you have fallen off the radar with who Roseanne is and who she's been in the recent years, Roseanne has sort of fallen off the deep end. (laughs) And by that, I mean she has been a Trump supporter for a while. She has tweeted uh, conspiracy theories about Donald Trump after he won the election, she she bought into the whole um, uh, Pizzagate story about the pedophile pizza parlor. Uh, she, uh, uh, just reading, uh, the Washington Post collected a series of her tweets from who she has been over the years. Uh, here she says, every single attack on, Donald, uh, attack on Donald Trump, this is after he was president, every single attack on Donald Trump is really a disguised attack on American voters who rejected Obama, Clinton, Bush's bleeding of, of the Treasury, which is mm. wrong. Mm. <laughs> uh, she says, J. Edgar Comey, <laughs> millions of feminists marching in support of women's subordination and lefties opposing Russia. Great time for my new old TV wait, show. Wait, that wait. was back in June of 2017. Can you repeat that? Feminists marching in, in support, support of, of women's subordination, subordination and lefties opposing Russia. Great time for my new old TV show. That was that was almost a year ago, June of, of 2017. I hope the Pope is right. I hope the bad souls do disappear. <laughs> uh, she also, I, I mentioned Pizzagate. Pizzagate and uh, journalists are being attacked by Think Progress and Media Matters. Uh, she tweeted about the Seth Rich cover-up. All right, so my point in all this is Roseanne is not a credible source for anything okay anything but because she had such a big night the other night it was so big that donald trump called her by the way totally normal brain on our totally normal president who went out to go talk about infrastructure and things like that and the thing he wanted to talk about was a phone call he got from mark burnett his hollywood producer friend that produced the apprentice about how great roseanne's ratings were totally normal brain on our totally normal president They were unbelievable. Over 18 million people. And it was about us. They haven't figured it out. The fake news hasn't quite figured out. They have not figured it out. So, like, completely bonkers. Completely insane that this is where we are with our, our, uh, with our totally normal president with a very, very, very normal brain. Um, Roseanne yesterday, let me just say this. First of all, I think I'm glad that Roseanne's show is back on. Uh, there has been some discussion about the fact that this is a situation comedy that is centered on a Trump voting family on the show. She supports Trump in real life. She supports Trump as well, but on the show, she supports Donald Trump. And I do think that Roseanne offered something when she had her show on 20 years ago and something now that we could learn from. And the lesson is that this is how these people think. This is how uh, Trump voters, some working class voters, 
uh, view their their sort of situation in life right now. And Roseanne uh, uh, was has been doing lots of interviews about her show, and one of the things she said yesterday was. Anyone who watches Roseanne should see that we know life is a struggle for most Americans, and it did not get easier during the 20 years we were off the air. Uh, let's face it, the issues we have in common, and, let's face the issues we have in common and help our families, neighbors, and leaders pull together towards solutions, please. And she said that is part of the reason that the show is doing well, which I think is, is something that like we as progressives should tune into. It's not the Bible. But, like, we should tune into to, like, get a little perspective that that's how these people think. I agree. And also there was um, a recent New York Times piece that came out, I think, either yesterday evening or this morning. And they quoted some ABC executives as saying, like, you know, we've done a lot of pushing as the American broadcasting company to highlight diverse, racially diverse voices, um, gender diverse voices, all kinds of things like that. But something that they felt that they had failed at presenting was economic diversity, which I agree. That's a wonderful thing to pursue because economic diversity is something that really intersects at the intersection. It sits at the intersection of race and at gender and everything else. But my question is, is Roseanne really the voice that you want to represent this? Because she has all of these conspiracy theories and, like, terrible things that she supports in her personal life. Yeah, no, I, look, I, 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 I documented all of the dumb things that she said and very wrong thing that she said. Is, she's the, is she the perfect vessel? No, certainly not. But I also think that, like, there are those people out there that have these stories to tell and... Uh, I think that we should not give them credibility necessarily, but I think we should listen to them because, as she says, life did not get get easier for a lot of people over the last 20 years. And and that goes for Republicans that are fed up, that were fed up with George W. Bush and the spending on the war or whatever it was. And then they were fed up with Barack Obama because, like it or not, Barack Obama was a very centrist watered-down version of what progressive politics could be, and it pissed a lot of people off on both sides. But these middle-class people, they didn't see their life get better over over uh, either of those presidents. They just didn't. And so, like, I think that we as progressives live in a bubble, and I think that we look at all Trump voters as honking gomers a lot of time. And to be fair, there are a lot of them. And if you are a person that voted for Donald Trump and still support Donald Trump, I mean, I think you should be paying a little bit closer attention. But at the same time, I'm not sure the Democrats have gone forward and presented to them the better a better alternative. And so why did people vote for Donald Trump? Because he stood up there and he said, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do this. Has he delivered on it? No. Will he deliver on it? No. But I understand why people voted for him. I do. I understand why people voted for them as well, voted for him as well. But I do think that they didn't do their homework, which we had a discussion off air about this. I think that falls squarely on the voters' shoulders. Um, It is. 
It, it does. I didn't mean to interrupt, but like it does. It does fall squarely on the voters' shoulders, but it's also a problem that you can't necessarily fix. But also, I want to push back a little bit on the notion that Democrats gave nothing to look forward to, because remember, Bernie was running on the Democratic ballot. Sure. Um, and by the time the Democratic National Convention rolled around, Hillary adopted pretty much everything that Bernie was pushing. But she did a terrible job of selling it. She did, but at the same time, there was something to believe in. And again, I think that it falls on the fact that people didn't do their homework necessarily. And I don't know. I okay, well, all right, here, here, how do you fix that then? How do you make people do their homework? How do you make voters do their homework? I think a lot of it comes down to effective communication, which, like you said, Hillary failed at. That's my point, though. You can't force them to do their homework. You have to go out and make the case for yourself. That's what politicians have to do. Sure. And that's what Hillary Clinton, and I don't, I don't want to beat up on Hillary Clinton. I think a lot of Democrats have this problem. I think a lot of Democrats, like Barack Obama, was too scared to go up there and say, like, I will accept single-payer health care and nothing less. And if he had and we had gotten single-payer health care, these Trump voters, these Trump supporters, these Roseanne Barr types, they would have seen how good it could have been for them. That's my point. You can't just say, wag a finger and say, you guys have to do a better job of learning up, of brushing up on the issues I don't think because they do have to do that. But I don't think that it's finger wagging also when you have this brainwashing of the right from media outlets like Fox, where even if you stand up there and say single, you know, like I'm going to give you X, Y, and Z, free education for all, like $15 minimum for uh, minimum wage. It's like they still sometimes push against that because they're like, well, no, because there's the core issue of guns and you're going to take that away or abortion rights. Like we don't want abortion. So anybody who supports that, no. I, I can't think of one politician that's gone out there and, and put forward in the way that you just said uh, that forceful of an argument. So their argument is weak, and so they get trampled by lies and and uh, miscommunication, Bernie like Fox News. Sanders. Oh yeah, yeah, look, but we we know that they're what the problems were with Bernie Sanders. We know what the problems were with the DNC and all that type of stuff, right? And Bernie is also not a perfect candidate for nope. for all that uh, we we talk about him on this show, right? Like I love Bernie, but don't get me wrong, I but but Bernie's not the issue. My point here is that I'm trying to make is. Uh, You've got to speak to these people. Yes. You've got to speak to these people. And Democrats have not. Barack Obama did not speak to these people. My question, though, is I think that we're kind of arguing the same thing. I just disagree that Trump really spoke to these people. Okay, that's fair. I, I, I hear that point. Uh, what I would say is I think that Trump spoke to these people better than the alternative. And, like, look, I, I, I have to say— George W. Bush, son of a U.S. president, son of privilege, certainly part of the political establishment, right? The so the, cheer squad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, people felt like they got completely rolled over by George W. Bush. Um, Barack Obama, scary to a lot of people because he's black and he's got a weird name. And a lot of these people haven't figured out that the people who are really damaging their livelihood are not people of color, but rich white guys. And and also, Barack Obama didn't make a great case for those are the people that are really damaging you and, were, and focused a lot on social issues, but didn't address the real problem that a lot of Americans are facing. And I don't think Donald Trump is either, but I think it's early, so early in his presidency that they're willing to give him a little bit more of a pass. And so I, 
I don't know, Peter. Did I know that the face of the Obama presidency was a lot of social issues? I mean, gay marriage, of course, passed. He was the greenest president that we've had. He really pushed for environmental concerns and regulations. But also, I mean, he became president after Bush. The economy was in shambles and he brought it back. He did, but he didn't bring it back for everybody. Not for everyone, but he did what he could in eight years. I, 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 I am I am not trying to take a dump on Barack Obama and say that he did a bad job. No, as but president. I think that it's a false narrative that he did only socially progress that he only took on socially progressive issues because that's not what I said. I'm saying I, I think that that was the focus of what he was doing. But mm-hmm. we saw a lot of job growth. We saw we also saw a lot of people drop out of the 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 job hunt. Like a lot of people just completely stopped looking for jobs altogether. We saw wages were pretty stagnant. Um, and look, look, Barack Obama didn't have a magic wand to fix all of that, but he didn't speak to that very well. He he just didn't. And and I and I'm not saying I expected him to come out and fix every single problem, and that's not realistic. But. He did not speak to those specific problems, which I think is why we have the problem that one of the reasons, I mean, there's obviously racism and sexism. That's a big, 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 big part of it. But I think that's one of the reasons that we're in the situation that we're in. So, so look, I, I, if you don't watch the Roseanne show, that's fine. I'm not saying you have to watch it, but I think that like, look, it's important for us as progressives to get out of our comfort zone, to get out of that bubble, to see and listen to the arguments from other sides sometimes. And maybe that gives us a little more perspective on where we should go and what problems we can address uh, as progressives. So there you go. Agree. That's my take. So we agree? Ish? Ish. Ish. (laughs) 36 minutes after the hour, Jack Jenkins from the Religion News Service joins us in just a couple minutes. Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show, 40 minutes past the hour. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Uh, remember, we are on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. I am on Twitter, at Peter Ogburn, at Peter Ogburn. A uh, couple of different uh, comments we got uh, earlier uh, about my conversation uh, about Barack Obama and what he did uh, to speak to those voters. Uh, lots of people have chimed in. Joey and UGR both said in, uh, chimed in to say Obama didn't do enough. Two words, GOP obstruction. The GOP blocked everything, including Supreme Court seats, and Democrats just let them do it. You're right. You have to fight for every inch, not be afraid of what might happen. Democrats stop overthinking every situation. Agreed. KG says, in my opinion, Barack Obama tried too hard to avoid the, quote, angry black man label and avoided controversial issues. Uh, so, yeah, let us know how you think, how you feel about the whole Roseanne thing uh, and on Twitter at BP Show. Well, my good friend, religion news service reporter Jack Jenkins is in studio this morning. Hi, Jack. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great news. <laughs> Apparently, hell doesn't exist. <laughs> You knew I had to start with this. Obviously, obviously. Uh, I had actually asked you to come on uh, for for another for some other stuff, but then mm-hmm. this happened after after we had your book. So, uh, I have to say, I have talked about it many many times. I was brought up in a Southern Baptist church, and literally everything that I did that was good as a kid was so that I wouldn't go to hell. <laughs> Well, what I I, it, I I will note, you're referring to the reports that Pope Francis said that um, there is no hell. 
it's important to note that the Vatican has walked that back yes. and said that that is not what he said and that the reporter who is putting these words in, in, in the Pope's mouth has – a very similar controversy occurred in 2015. So the source here is deeply um, suspect, especially considering the Pope is on record affirming that hell exists. Okay. Um, but Hell exists. We're living in it. <laughs> Fair. But I will say that like um, – you know, the, the idea of universalism, the idea that everyone goes to heaven, as yeah. it were, um, well, you know, that's that's the good version of universalism as opposed to the other one where we all go to hell. Yeah. Um, the uh, that is that is not an uncommon belief. Then there's an entire tradition, Unitarian Universalism, that ascribes to this view or at least was founded on similar precepts. Um, and I, I, I would I would be curious um, if if you polled the global Catholic population, how many of them. Um, may have grown up with concepts of hell, but uh, might not actually believe that hell exists. Really? So, I mean, like you, you find we, there was a controversy a couple years ago because um, an evangelical pastor, um, Rob Bell, mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 there was there was a lot of talk about him writing a book or him making statements that seemed to imply that maybe hell doesn't exist or that everyone goes to heaven, and you know that that led to a lot of controversy because that both resonated with a lot of American Christians and did not resonate with some of the the leadership of evangelicalism. Um, so, and that's that's just in the Protestant world. I, I'd be curious to see um, how those numbers are reflected in um, the Catholic realm, but. Um, but needless to say, I don't know if the Pope uh, – I, I would be I, – I doubt a lot of observers and reporters of Catholicism doubt that the Pope actually said that hell doesn't exist. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that other Catholics might not believe that. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. I, it's just so funny to me because, like, I, 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 having grown up in the church, I've, it's been a long time since I've been to a church. Uh, but, like, everything that I did was – it was beaten into me. Like, you got to do this or – you're gonna go to hell. <laughs> you're gonna, your soul will be damned for eternity. Uh, and that was really my only motivating factor for behaving. <laughs> and so yeah. now, hey, what the hell? You want a beer? It's at seven in the morning. Let's have a beer. We can we can misbehave. What what, what, what do we have to worry about? <laughs> oh God, it, it's just a fascinating story, uh, Jack. I want to ask you about um, the March for Our Lives, oh, yeah. which was this past weekend. Uh, a huge, huge deal. Yeah. Uh, looks like it's probably the biggest protest that we have ever had here in Washington, D.C. Um, 800,000 people took to the streets, which, wow, that's a lot. Uh, you were there, and you talked a little bit about how faith groups sort of played into this march, which I, I think is interesting. Yeah. So um, I, I for the size, I it's still kind of weird to me how you're going to count the size of this versus the women's march because where the march was held off of the the um, the mall was like different. Yeah. Um, but it was it is undeniable that it was mammoth. Yeah, like yeah, it was yeah. an absolutely mammoth thing. And one thing I saw when looking through this expansive crowd was a lot of signs that were reflecting religion. And in my there's a great by the way, there's a great uh, sign faith over firearms. Right. That you had a picture of in right. your uh, in, in your piece, which is great. The, the, the United Church of Christ put out those signs. Um, but in my reporting, what I found was that, I I mean this, I honestly was put on, you know, trying to find the God angle on mm-hmm. the March for Our Lives. And I figured this was going to be, you know, you make three phone calls kind of story where you get a few voices and you put it up there and whatever. Instead, when I put out the call to, you know, are you involved in this? I was overwhelmed with responses. Churches from across the country, um, synagogues, mosques, everything were busing people in for the march and participating in local marches. 
Um, I remember I talked to one Lutheran pastor from New Jersey, and just from her um, conference, they'd sent five buses of people to the march, um, her group of churches. And the night before the march, on Friday evening, there was a vigil at the National Cathedral, and it was an interfaith vigil. And they had um, people who you know had lost folks in the Charleston shooting speak. They had the parents of oh, one of geez. the Parkland survivors. Of course. Um, their daughter, apparently the last night they spent with her was at their church, where she was the um, president of her youth group. Um, and... You know, there was just a lot of, you know, the next day I went to a Union for Reform um, Judaism gathering and they had 3,000 kids there, including a large subset of Parkland survivors. Um, There was at least five was the last count I heard of the Parkland victims were Jewish. Um, And so they showed up in force. And, you know, there were there were all these different faith things. And at first that seems perplexing. um, But. I found out two things over the course of my reporting. One is that a lot of these churches and a lot of these faith groups were asked to be there or spurned to be there by their youth. Mm. So um, historically black um, church in Vienna told me he told me like his one of his youth group came up to him and said, hey, we're going to go whether or not the church is coming. And we would like it if you could come. I love that. But man. we're going to go. And we're just letting you know. And um, and we saw similar things with some of these other faith groups. And so the youth seemed to play a really big role in you know, exciting their churches. And the other part here is that a lot of people forget that um, in 2012, 2013, after the Newtown killings, mm-hmm. um, the church, like just broadly speaking, the Christian church and then all these greater interfaith groups – um, got really involved in the gun debate. Uh, the dean of the National Cathedral actually stood up in the pulpit and delivered a sermon in which he declared, you know, um, the gun lobby is no match for the cross lobby and like went all in on, a, on calling for gun control legislation. And so this whole group of this whole network got built that, um, you know, was supposed to help bring about legislation. And they, they didn't. They weren't able to tip the scales. Mm. But it looks like, you know, years later in 2018, when these Parkland kids and this youth-driven movement really kind of reignited this conversation and have really been taking a leadership role, these other networks that have been built, both, you know, non-faith groups, but also these church networks and mm. faith networks have been activated and they showed up in a big way this past weekend as well. It's so cool because, like, you know, a lot of churches that I grew up in and went to were so, they had such a robust youth group or youth thing, and it was almost just like, this is where the kids go, where the adults (laughs) do the grown-up stuff. But, like, to your point, right, like, the kids see this. They realize it's a problem. And also, you know, stated the obvious here, these these kids have parents that want to see them protected, and they'll Mm -hmm. listen to their kids more than they'll listen to uh, some ideological talking points, which so much of religion has become Mm -hmm. just ideological talking points, whether it's on something that is on its surface not a religious issue, like the gun issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, It almost feels like so many different churches and religious uh, outlets are just political arms of the Republican Party. It's been the the gun issue in particular has been interesting because it's one of the few places where some of these traditions now the the great outlier um, for a lot of this statistically is the white evangelical Protestants. Um, They uh, the last poll I saw was 2013, so it's a little old data, but mm-hmm. um, they are like one of the only major American religious groups that the majority didn't support more um, stricter gun control legislation. 
But um, but like you've had when uh, other churches um, when when other you know when some churches might have said so for instance after the Texas shooting um, Robert Jeffress yeah. um, advisor oh, yeah. to um, the president um, and head of a pastor he's pastor of a large Texas church um, after the Texas shooting last year in Sutherland. Um, he, you know, was saying, well, in, in my church, we're a third to a half of us are armed and, you know, it, basically advocating for people to arm parishioners. Um, whereas other churches in Texas and in other parts of the Southeast have, over the course of the last few years, banned guns from their premises, like made a big point of that, because while they've been passing legislation at the state level to allow for guns to be carried on mm. on churches they they allow this carve out where if your church puts up a sign you can't and a bunch of you know catholic churches mainline churches you know synagogues and mosques have been uh, have put up signs saying you cannot bring weapons um firearms onto our campuses and so now it's become this dividing line religiously where a lot of religious groups say, no, this is something we cannot abide. You know, like, and they, they draw a distinction between security, you know, having security guards, um, which is a, definitely a thing for a lot of, you know, communities like Jewish communities and Muslim communities that have had, and Sikh communities that have had their houses of worship attacked recently um, by, you know, by various people and, you know, actually having their people in worship with, you know, guns on their person. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so it's it's become an interesting theological conversation where uh, the, the voices uh, for gun control seem to be a lot louder yeah. than the other side. And I think so much of it has to do with the kids. I talked mm-hmm. earlier about Laura Ingram, who got in some hot water yep. uh, because of the things that she had said about David Hogue, who's one of the students from Parkland, who we've, we've seen a lot. He's one of the higher profile uh, kids. And... She was mocking him for not being able to get into college with a 4.1 GPA, by the way. 4.2, wasn't it? 4.1? 4, 4, 4. 4. 4.2, 4.2, whatever it was. Whatever it was, it was, was probably higher than mine. It was so, better than what yeah, I yeah, ever yeah. had in my entire <laughs> life. But then she she tweeted out yesterday, on reflection, in the spirit of Holy Week, mm-hmm. I apologize for any upset or hurt my tweet caused him or any of the brave victims of Parkland. So basically saying, like, because it's Holy Week, I'll, I'll apologize. Now, did you see what his response was? No. Because this turned into an interesting theology fight. Oh, because, boy. Because she... Um, she God, well, it's so great you're here today because there are so many <laughs> theological fights out because, there yesterday. So she only apologized after some of the advertisers started yes. pulling from her show, which right. was something that, that um, David you know, put on his his tw- initial Twitter response to her um, saying, you know, He's, here are all her advertisers. And so some of them started pulling out. And last I heard, it was six, seven, or eight that have already pulled since then. And so she gave her response, you know, in the spirit of Holy Week, on, upon reflection, et cetera, et cetera, apologizing. His response was eventually saying, you know, I don't really accept this apology unless you're going to also apologize for all the other things your network has done. And he's like, you know, we need to love our neighbor, love our neighbor as ourself, again, referencing, referencing scripture. And, um, Amen. And then in, <laughs> in, in, in progressive religious circles, the hashtag in the spirit of Holy Week became a thing for a little while where people would say, well, in the spirit of Holy Week, I think guns are evil. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. And so yeah. you started seeing that get picked up where it's like her referencing that has has is, has become a, uh, a theological flashpoint. It, kind of, it seems to have backfired in a way. Uh, you know, I, I, every, every one of these kids from Parkland that I've seen like take somebody on mm-hmm. has gotten the better of them. Like there was Cameron Caskey, I think, took on Marco Rubio over guns at the part at the in Florida the days after they had that CNN town hall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just obliterated him. Anybody that steps to Emma Gonzalez gets completely destroyed. 
David Hogue has clearly made like embarrassed people that have come after him over his grades. Like, come on, guys. I mean, it's I, I will say it's been interesting. You know, when I was doing the reporting for the stuff this past weekend, you know, like it was very clear that. You know, these these adults were really excited to be there with their kids for these faith based rallies and stuff like that. But it was also really clear that in a lot of instances, the kids were running the show and like that they have been, you know, they've grown up in an era where they're they're trained to do this. They know how to be politically yeah. astute. Yeah. You know? And like whether that's because of social media where they they developed a political consciousness really early on where, you know, uh, my generation, the millennial generation, you know, we had Columbine. So we relate to this. But like I was nowhere near as politically right. astute as a lot of these kids seem to be. And so, you know, if you're if you're. You're, and you're also Columbine with... got just like I mean it was a big deal but yeah. it, gun control and gun safety was not the issue it, like that's not what we were talking about in the days after Columbine. Yeah, I mean it was mostly just like this tragedy happened and then you probably shouldn't play the video game. Doom. Video games, Marilyn Manson, yeah, all yeah. this stuff. like that was the issue. It wasn't about fixing the gun problem. Exactly. We, we just skipped over that part and got to the other stuff. Exactly. So. Which is ridiculous. Okay, we only got about 3 minutes left. Okay. Um but so, um, Stormy Daniels has spoken. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, uh, Karen McDougal has mm-hmm. spoken. Mm-hmm. Uh, multiple women have come forward and have spoken. Mm-hmm. Some reservos have spoken. Are the religious rights still sticking by Donald Trump? It's a question we talk about all the time uh, here on the show, whenever <laughs> you're here. Uh, are they still with him? Yeah. And and if anything, there's been some data to indicate that support for him has gone up. Um, I, I know a recent morning consult poll of, of, of among evangelicals that support has actually increased for Donald Trump. It's not clear if that's because of the Stormy Daniels controversy or if that was already ascending. But at the end of the day, you know, there was this piece written in The Washington Post this past week by a group of scholars that were saying, look, for a lot of these um, evangelical voters and a lot of these religious right types – um, they see the world, they, 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 they wouldn't identify as such, but they're effectively what's called Christian nationalists, where yeah. they fuse their, this, this Christian identity with their national identity. And that's not really about theology per se. For some mm. of them it is. For some mm. of them it's this idea that God is, you know, can use imperfect vessels like Donald Trump. And is that as long as, as, as Donald Trump delivers on the agenda that they, they foresee, whether, you know, Supreme Court justice, et cetera, et cetera, they'll line up behind him. And then there's folks who just like, you know, they might not have been to church in 20 years, and but they have a, a cross in their wall and a Bible in their house. And if somebody calls them for a poll, they'll say they were born and born again Christian. And as long as Donald Trump gives, you know, what, what others would describe as lip service to, mm-hmm. you know, we were, we're going to say Merry Christmas, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. um, then that strengthens yeah. an identity. It's not really necessarily theology. It's like this is who I am. Donald Trump represents that. I never expected him to be this saint to begin with, and it doesn't seem inconsistent with my theology because I don't really know what the theology would be to begin with. And so this group seems to have been in some ways transactional with yeah. the president. Yeah. Um, where they, It's a really good way to put it. And so, like, you know, some will argue that, you know, they're not being inconsistent. You know, if he were to have an affair or do something bad as president, that's different than if he did it before his presidency. There's um, a very interesting line of uh, – of of uh, thought that that came out with I think it was Jerry Falwell that originally put it out there it was just like no 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 all these things that you're hearing about these happened before he was president mm-hmm. none of this stuff has happened since he was president and then that's okay which like really right that's the line we're drawing right uh, and so I think people just give him a pass 
And I, I, I think he would be at this point. It's, it's I, I, many religion reporters that I run into. Um, you know, they, they would be surprised to see a significant break at this point, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, because it does seem to be. Um, you know, again, unless he's diverted from the religious rights agenda yeah. as president, which he doesn't seem to have genuinely done yet, there's probably not going to be an exodus of support for the president among white evangelical Protestants. You've got such a great grasp on this stuff, Jack. You really do. And I love talking about it with you, especially in the days of Donald Trump. Follow Jack on Twitter at Jack M. Jenkins. Read his good work at religiousnews.com. He's reported for the Religion News Service. Thank you so much. Happy Easter. Have a great weekend. Uh, and uh, we'll be right back with more of the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. It is The Bill Press Show here on a Friday, March 30th. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. Uh, So much stuff to talk about. Just a reminder uh, that we do have our podcast up. We put it up right after the show. So go take a look at it. Just look for The Bill Press Show on iTunes or anywhere that you get your podcasts. Uh, Just come uh, go check it out there. Uh, We've got it up for you. We put the whole show up. We cut the commercials out. We tighten it up uh, and let you uh, listen at at, at, whatever is easiest for you. Like anytime that you want to listen, you can listen. Bill Press Show in your pocket. In your pocket. That's a great (laughs) way to put it. Don't forget we're on YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. So uh, check it out. I I am very, very lucky to be joined this hour by Deputy News Editor for Axios. Hi. Alexa, we can't. Hi, so, Alexa. as of two weeks ago, I have a new title. Oh, you have a new title? I knew that, actually. <laughs> what? Tell me a new title. I am now a political reporter. Political reporter. Yes. That's um, very cool. Very excited about it, yes. That's very cool. Loved being an editor, but um, and now doing political reporting full-time, focusing on the Democratic Party, which is very broad, and the midterm elections, which is also very broad, but exciting. Congrats. Thank you. That's very thank you, cool. Thank you. I think you so have happy. A, I think you have a great perspective on the Democratic Party and how it runs and all that stuff. And yeah. I've the been, politics of it all. I've been uh, so when I first moved to DC about a year ago, um, I was like, no one's really talking to Democrats, so I should start kind of talking to them. And now I'm obviously in a better position to do that, but um, it's been a long, exciting year, and I can't wait to cover the elections this year. It's been a weird year. Yeah, 
That's for sure. We were talking earlier about the the success of of Roseanne's new show. Oh my god! Yeah. So that's one of those stories that I just like tuned out yesterday. But that's fair. I was just like, you know what? I have too little time and too many things to focus on. I don't under I don't know what's going on with this Roseanne thing. Other than my brief knowledge is like the cast has a handful of Trump supporters. Okay. Well, she so she is not only a Trump supporter. She's like a conspiracy theorist. She's like a PizzaGate. Good. Uh, Good. Yeah. No. No. She's totally insane. I almost went to a concert last night at Comet Ping Pong. <gasps> Thank was, God you didn't. I didn't. Thank God you didn't. <laughs> I didn't for many reasons. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Reminded me Smart. <laughs> yeah. uh, actually, I was actually in P- uh, Comet Ping Pong the other day, which if you don't know about that, Google it, but you know yeah. about it. Uh, Did you but, see there's a beer called Pizzagate? Now? No, really? Yes, but like not related. It's just a, an, an unfortunate coincidence. I love that. Yeah. I don't think they, I don't know how they would know, but. Yeah, everyone and, should look it up. So anyway, she she's like a like a like a total conspiracy theorist. Not and so the whole idea is here's a show that represents Trump supporters in their natural habitat, and 18 million people watched. It's it's just fascinating. Trump TV. Trump. It's Trump finally TV here. Arrived. <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day, talking about it with someone. Like, remember when? Everyone was like, well, if he doesn't win, he's probably just going to start his own TV show, yeah. like, network. No, no, no. When, when he doesn't it. win. Like, everybody was yes. convinced he wasn't going to win. Right. And this was all a long con to get Trump TV. And they started doing it or, like, previewing what it would be like on Facebook Live, remember? Yeah, yeah uh, I do. And now, I guess, Roseanne is... <laughs> and that was only, like, let's see, that was during the election of 2016, so that was 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Like, exactly. It was uh, like several <laughs> lifetimes ago that we like talked so about all that. So long ago. And the amazing thing is, like, as soon as the midterm elections and 2020 cycle will start. Yeah. So, like, oh no, totally. We are. <laughs> and by the way, we it. we ended up with Trump TV. Yeah. Like, we have Trump TV. He's everywhere. Like, they they will not stop putting him on TV. Yeah. If they can help it, like yeah. he's up there all the time. You and can't so, in miss a lot it. of ways. He got the best of both worlds. I know. He won the presidency, and he has Trump to like constant coverage. Yeah. Uh, really quickly, you can follow Lexi on Twitter. You have a new Twitter handle, too, right? It's just Alexi, right? Yes. It's so much easier now. How I, did you get that? Um, just Alexi. We have this guy who works with us. His name is Anton. He is, like, very plugged in. And I was like, Anton, I need to build my brand. The person who owned at Alexi hadn't used it since 2010, so they gave it to me. All right, there you go. So follow her at Alexi. Perfect. Uh, We're going to take a really, really, really quick break, and we'll be right back. Uh, Jump right into it on The Bill Press Show. your radio on tv and online this is the bill press show we're back on the bill press show thank you so much for tuning in i am not bill press i am peter ogburn i'm sitting in for bill today on a friday march 30th it's easter weekend coming up uh i'm I'm not a big i'm not a big easter person i i celebrate it because i know that spring is right around the corner yeah but I don't celebrate it for the religious reasons. I also celebrate it because <laughs> I love candy. <laughs> Are you going to do an Easter egg hunt with your kids? No. No. They're too old, probably. They're too old. Yeah. And we've never really done Easter baskets with them. Yeah. That's Although, a good habit. 
You know, I, I I did this story. Do you know how much you know how much sugar they cram into these Easter baskets? Oh no, more than you think. I don't the want to. The average. Know. I think I lost the story, but I'll, I'll find it real quick. Oops. The average. Do you remember the numbers? Nine hundred grams. Nine hundred grams. Equivalent to like seventy something chocolate chip cookies. Or twenty three cans of soda. Oh, that's my the average God. child's Easter basket. And it didn't include outrageous things. It included Peeps. Jelly beans, um, peanut butter eggs, peanut butter yeah. eggs, and like miscellaneous chocolate. Oh my god! On the scale of greatest candy that you could possibly eat, mm-hmm. Reese's peanut butter eggs so good are at the very top. They're Peeps so and good. Cadbury cream eggs. Peeps <laughs> and Cadbury cream eggs are basura trash. No, I yes. agree with you. Except Total I trash. do like so bad. stale awful Peeps. You know what I did one year? Peeps. You know what I did one year? Uh, because I'm 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 a, uh, a a fussy cook. I have one of those little brulee torches. Yes. So I got all the peeps. <laughs> I bruleed the peeps. Until and the they sh- were incinerated that's to ash, so and no, they no, threw no. them in the trash. No, 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 no. The 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 top that's all I covered know. in sugar turns glassy like a creme brulee, mm. and the inside schmallow turns all gooey. Mm. That's amazing. Peeps upgrade. Will I'm you here please? for the peeps, though. I just don't like the Cadbury cream eggs. Peeps are, for the most part, are pretty trash. They're pretty bad. They're you pretty should bad. take a video of that next time mm. and narrate like you're on Chopped to the Food Network. Here we have, <laughs> here we have a delicacy. The highly processed marshmallow product. <laughs> Notice the glassy glaze <laughs> over the top. <laughs> I'm going to delicately glaze over this Purple sugar? The sugar that is purple in defiance of God's will? <laughs> a color not normally found in nature here yeah. on top of this candy? Sadly, if you did it, it, I think it might get the most views of anything we've ever posted if you do it. I'll do it this weekend. All right. I'll do it I'm this weekend. I'm not kidding. Do it. I I'm sure wait. we got some schmallows around. I'm very excited to watch this. It's so, and they're actually good. I'm not kidding. Cooking After you torch them? After you torch them. Cause they're, they're it's like a it's yeah. like a brulee, right? You got like a, it's a, like a hard yeah. glassy outside, and then the inside warm marshmallow. Hello, I love this. You What's... should like sell it to Starbucks and have <sighs> convince them to make a new drink, toasted peep toasted latte. peep latte, <laughs> toasted peep <laughs> brulee latte, peep brulee. You latte. need to add glitter and color changing to it, and yeah. it'll be a bestseller. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Starbucks, if you're listening. <laughs> Howard, we're talking directly to you. <laughs> Call me. I'm telling you. Uh, okay, we're feeling very silly today. Well, it's, it's Friday. Week, yeah. It's been a long it's week. Good. I'm a little punch drunk. I from feel like the week. this is a standard show with Peter. We generally okay, talk that's fair. about. That's also fair. We generally talk about candy. We poll our viewers about candy. I'm not kidding. Also, when Sabrina oh. Speaky is here, we poll about candy. I love Sorry. that. I, I, I end up talking way too much about food. In terms of that's food okay. holidays, Turkey Hotline Bling. Is to, the thing. I did the I do the turkey hotline oh at Thanksgiving. I love that. Yeah, which I which I nail the Thanksgiving meal every yeah. year. In terms of food holidays, Easter is top ten. Ten's that's probably right at ten. Is yeah. that the guy whose favorite holiday of all time is July fourth? No, 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 no. That's not you. No, that's not me. Oh, that July fourth was... <laughs> is in the top five. By the way, July fourth <laughs> is in the top five. Uh, the number one undisputed. Oh yeah, yeah, you're obviously a Thanksgiving dude. Is Thanksgiving very good? Duh. Yeah. But Easter is 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 close to is in the top ten. Ham. You got like the spring lamb. You got some some sure. vegetables show up. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter eggs. Yeah. I mean, come on. 
As a vegetarian, it's like my least favorite food holiday. Oh, Because no. it is those it's things. So, it's lamb, all that stuff. Ham. Lamb and ham yeah. and all that stuff. But I did realize today, which is maybe too late in my life to realize this, that Easter brunch is a thing. Yeah. So, like, I'm from the Midwest. My family is a Midwestern family. We didn't do you do eat eggs? brunch. Do you eat eggs? Yeah. You, right, so mm-hmm. Lots of eggs. So, lots of eggs. Lots I'll of just eggs. have brunch all day. Loads <laughs> of eggs. It's a plate <laughs> yeah. of eggs. Yeah. Worst food holidays, by the way? Do you have a Do you have a submission? St. Patrick's Day. Well, not really, because I guess it's a liquid diet that day. The correct answer is St. Patrick's Day. There, I mean, there, the worst yeah. food holiday. Sorry, boiled boiled beef and green <laughs> beer and soda bread. Ugh. Yeah. Have you ever had soda bread? It doesn't even sound good. It's called soda bread. <laughs> green beer, though. No. It's a no for me. That's a no. Uh, I love it. It's a no for me. I think think because of the Chicago thing, you know? Yeah, no, I get that. Get up early. It's a big deal. You start drinking green beer. You go to the Green River. I, I, in, in, there were times in my life that I had many, many, many green beers. I don't do it anymore, though. (laughs) One day I will be mature. (laughs) It's not a maturity thing. It's not a maturity thing. It's just at some point I'm like, am I really going to be the, like, yeah, aging stoner dad that shows up <laughs> at the bar at eleven and, and like pounding green beers. It's not. That's for true. Me. I didn't celebrate this year. No, I don't. No. I don't know if people here do. You know what that's called? Progress. Progress. <laughs> Progress. All um, right. All right. So we didn't just bring Alexi in to talk yeah. about the best and worst food holidays, although we could keep going with that. But yeah, I wanted to talk to you about um, some of the news of the day. Yeah. First of all, uh, you wrote about. Paul Manafort, yeah. uh, one of our favorites. We try and keep up with Paul Manafort as much as we can, although there's a lot to keep up with these days. Yeah, um, He is trying to dismiss these charges from Robert Mueller. Yeah, I so I have somehow just like fallen into the de facto person who writes about Paul Manafort at Axios. I think because I was just so fascinated by him when I first started there a year ago, and now I'm just like, I can't. Get out of it. He's um, a fascinating character. I mean, I am. I want to make, even though I don't have the skills to do this, a Get Me Roger Stone style documentary about yeah. Paul Manafort. Like, yeah. there's so much about him that we don't know. But in any case, what we do know is that, like you just mentioned, he's filed his second motion to dismiss the indictments that Bob Mueller has brought against him, both in the D.C. court and the Virginia court. And I'm sure you've seen the headlines, but for people who are listening who maybe haven't, um, it was estimated by a judge that if Paul Manafort were to be convicted of all the charges brought against him in D.C. and Virginia combined, he would face up to 305 years in prison. Damn! That's a lot of That's time. That's a lot. I mean, yes, it's like a clicky headline, but like that is the the amount of time he would spend if he was charged for everything. Wow. The likelihood of him being charged, you know, with everything that they're bringing against him uh, he's a rich white man. Uh, he'll, he'll, he's he'll, not going to do 300 years. He's not, right. I think Rick Gates is facing like up to six years now after he gave a guilty plea. Whoa. So like that's pretty, that's like high, but it's low. You can do that time. Yeah. Like he, he'll be, he'll have a life ahead yeah, of him. Totally. Um, but so, you know, the interesting thing about Paul Manafort is like he has this, I'm, I'm told and my understanding is that he has a hearing for this Virginia court case April 4th, and then for D.C., April 19th. And his legal team, uh, I was told, was not planning to file this motion to dismiss for the Virginia charges until after the April 19th hearing. Mm. Um, 
this is all whatever kind of boring legal stuff. The interesting thing is that it shows that a couple of things. The main thing is that Paul Manafort and his legal team are not giving in and not pleading guilty, even though Rick Gates, his business partner, has weeks ago. Um, and that they're going to keep fighting this by accusing Bob Mueller and the special counsel, as they have done in both of these motions to dismiss, of sort of um, violating the scope that he was given initially to look into Russian inclusion and meddling in the election. All of the charges being brought against Paul Manafort thus far are from like 2014 and before. So they're really unhappy about that. And they're sort of using that as their main argument. I mean, the hearings are April 4th and April 19th. So we'll see what the judges say about these. Um, the other kind of crazy thing is like Bob Mueller and his special counsel team have nearly unlimited funds. Right. Paul Manafort <laughs> clearly has like a decent amount of money because sure. he's still fighting unlike Rick Gates, who I think was like, I want to have a life ahead of me, and I don't have unlimited funds. But Paul Manafort is, like, going toe-to-toe with the special counsel, putting up as much money as he possibly can, I guess, until he runs out. I was also told that, like, this fight from Paul Manafort's end might not be over for, like, many years. That's a really interesting point, right? Like, these these things could go on for quite some time like even if these motions to dismiss are successful yeah. i was told it could be like three years that really he's fighting and oh i'm just like I, I can you like you have a life you have a family again you don't have unlimited resources financial resources yeah. like I, I don't know how they're going to move forward i guess we will see more after these hearings um but that's really like and this is just teams. one piece of the puzzle too like paul yeah. manafort is just one guy right Right. Well, and now Mueller came out on Wednesday with this guy named Constantine who worked in Paul Manafort's lobbying firm in Ukraine who, like, served in the Russian military and and was, like, bragging about having connections to, like, Russian intelligence officers and Russia. And they were in contact during the campaign. So this argument that uh, Paul Manafort's legal team is putting forward that, you know, Mueller is only getting after him for things from 2014 and before will only last until... This new thing with this guy Constantine progresses because they were in contact during the campaign. Oh, boy. I mean, no one like that's all that all remains to be seen. But like that changes things for his legal team's arguments. Uh, Political reporter for Axios, Alexi McCammon, joins us in studio. And uh, as we mentioned before, you have been writing primarily uh, about the Democrats. Uh, And it's a very exciting, interesting time for Democrats because I think a lot of progressives see this blue wave coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've already seen it happen in a couple of different states and a couple of different elections. Uh, but you have a piece, and I am fascinated by this. And this gets into what we were talking about earlier with the whole Roseanne thing, mm-hmm. the whole Roseanne phenomenon. And it is how do Democrats talk to their their constituents, their base, mm-hmm. their people. They, how, how do they get more voters to come to their side as opposed to the Republicans? And one of the things that you wrote about, I want to read directly from your piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, quote, new internal polling conducted by the DCCC by Greenberg, Quinlan, Rosner Research suggests that Democratic candidates running in swing districts must express a willingness to work with the president when his agenda might help the district. The survey also recommends that Democrats not appear out of sync with what people believe about the economy. So... There are a couple that you could read that a couple different ways. When like when uh, uh, about the uh, president's agenda, when it might help with the district, right? 
What would be some examples of like when it might help the district? So infrastructure is a big thing, but like he hasn't really moved forward on that. So that's a lot of wait, wait. Yesterday he talked about it. Ray, do we have that clip of him saying that infrastructure, what infrastructure really is? It's the first clip we played today. He spoke about this. I think he was in Ohio Uh yesterday. Here he is talking about infrastructure. To me, this is a very, very sexy subject. The media doesn't find it sexy. Very sexy. I find it sexy. He finds it sexy. Because I was always a builder. I always knew how to build on time, on budget, and that's what we want here. Okay, so so he is talking about infrastructure, Alexi. <laughs> he is. It's sexy. It's so sexy. Um, what I think what last week was like the sixth infrastructure week we've had in 2018. Yeah, I'm like I don't I. It's fascinating. But in any case, so that's one thing when I talk to like you know Democratic senators, for example, who represent states that Trump won. In 2016, like Montana, Indiana, Missouri, North Dakota, some of those, they talk about how they align with Trump mostly on like infrastructure and they want him to move forward on an infrastructure plan that like helps them because that's what people in their towns really care about and their states really care about. So that's one thing. But that like sort of remains to be seen because like who knows what the administration is going to do this year. Another thing that like they have to toe the line on is the tax law, I guess, now. I keep referring to his tax bill, and my editor was like, it's law now. It's law now. Um, The tax law. like So that's something that this um, internal polling talks about a lot, because people are obviously seeing benefits in their paychecks from this tax law. At the same time, Democrats have a really hard time because they have to explain, like, you're seeing these benefits, but they are not going to last forever. They're temporary. And what will last forever are cuts for corporations and the wealthy. And and that's obviously not going to help the middle class. So that's like something that I am fascinated by because it requires so much knowledge, obviously. But then like how boring is that to be a voter and to listen to someone be like, well, no, no, no. Let me explain how this doesn't last and this is the way it works. Instead of someone like Trump or Republicans being like, these are the greatest tax cuts ever. Look at the bonuses in your paychecks. Like, I don't know how Democrats will get over that immediate or almost short sighted nature from people when they're seeing those benefits, except for explaining and really harping on the fact that wealthy people and corporations benefit the most. I think that I, I think you're right. It's 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 not it's it's not like infrastructure. It's, it's not, not sexy. sexy. <laughs> uh, but I think Connor Lamb did a good job of this in Pennsylvania. He was against the tax uh, law and and saying exactly what you said. Look, it's going to be nice. You can go get a Costco membership this year, uh, but it's not always going to be that way. Right. And what we need is real serious uh, uh, help for uh, for for people that like like you, the people he was talking to. Right um, on the infrastructure thing, it is really amazing how infrastructure is one of those things that Donald Trump promised he was going to address right off the bat, and we, I mean, he still talks about it sort of peripherally, yeah. but like we don't have. Anything that we can point to. And by the way, we're not going to get one anytime soon. Oh, we're not at all. And like, again, like you were just saying, they were like, at the outset of 2018, that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to get it done. And this time last year, they were focusing on tax cuts and this tax plan. And somehow, obviously, got it through. But with infrastructure, they're just sort of taking a back burner position. And, and also, Donald Trump and infrastructure, I think one of the reasons that we've seen it have such a sloppy rollout is that. Infrastructure has been a democratic issue. Democratic politicians have been talking about this for a long, long time because it means the government has to spend. Right. The government has to spend money to fix these problems. Uh, Barack Obama, what, part of the uh, his plan to 
to fix the economy early on was to these these jobs, these infrastructure jobs, which Republicans hated then and now love because Donald mm-hmm. Trump loves it. But right. wheel in the sky keeps on turning. <laughs> Nothing changes. Um, yeah. But like, you know, I think Democrats can speak to that and make the argument that like, look, the United States government, the power of the government can do more than these corporations that we want to hand things over to. Right. Because they have the power of the government behind them. Right. And that's a democratic message. Yeah. And I mind. think they'll have to, you know, campaign on that. But the other thing that they're being advised to campaign on a lot is like health care still. Mm-hmm. Like health care insurance premiums will be a big issue because those are expected to rise right before the election in November. Obviously, it's really easy. And, you know, I interviewed Randy Bryce, the guy who's running against Paul Ryan the Iron other day. Stash. Iron Stash. Yes, and indeed. like, He's very strategic in the way that he campaigns on this because he says he's running to repeal and replace Paul Ryan. And I think that's like a pretty clever way of talking about it because it reminds people what Republicans were trying to do even though they were unsuccessful. And that's going to be a major issue. The economy is a major issue. And that's something else this internal polling from the DCCC shows is like – Democrats have to be wary of like appearing out of sync with what the voters believe about the economy, which is that it is improving because it is. Now, they're not advised to go out and be like, you know, the economy is improving. Trump and Republicans are totally responsible for this, especially because this polling also showed something like 40 percent of voters across all of these 52 swing districts credited Trump and Republicans for the improving economy. So not even a majority of voters do credit them. So Democrats can use that to to their advantage and sort of say, like, we get it. You're happy with this tax law. Here is how it's going to, you know, not benefit the middle class. We get you're happy with the economy, but, like, here's how we can help make it better. So they have a lot of work cut out for them. But I I think, like, it's certainly not impossible. Um, And, again, like, after tax cuts... Republicans and the Trump administration are not moving forward on any major legislation. So that's right. all they really have going into this. Yeah, and polling shows that, like, the approval rate for the tax law varies greatly across the country. So it's sort of like that can't be your only thing you're campaigning on. I go back and forth with the whole uh, with candidates saying, like, oh, I'll I'll work with Donald Trump or I'll work with the Republicans versus saying, like, yeah. I'll just shut him down. Yeah. Because I I mean. I, I just don't know. I really, and I think it does matter district to district, right? Like Connor right, Lamb ran the kind of campaign he ran in Pennsylvania, and he won. And I don't think he could have run that campaign in a more progressive area and right. won. I think he had to would have to be more progressive. But right. I, the the whole idea of working with Trump that's interesting. Is, um, it's really fascinating because it, it, yeah. and the other part of that is you've got Trump who says things that we all know he doesn't mean. Right. Like with the like with the gun control stuff, like right. he s- said flat out, I think we should take their guns first and figure out things later. Like, right. that, yeah, God help us card. if a Democrat had said that. Right. That's the tricky. That's why this memo suggests like only if it's going to help the district. Yeah. They want candidates to run a hyper, hyper local race, which makes sense. They know that these districts voted for Trump, obviously not as much as you know, the district that Connor Lamb was running in voted for Trump, which is a good thing for Democrats after Connor Lamb won. Um, But there is like this amount of like willingness to work with the other side while also holding him accountable when he does say things that are misleading or that, you know, he will not 
hold up or things that are just flat out wrong or not good for the district. So it's a lot of I think that's the interesting thing for Democrats, whether it's talking about this tax law or the economy or like their willingness to work with Trump. They have to toe this really tight line. Um, And that's not to say they can't. Uh, It's just makes their work even harder, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but totally. but the other thing, too, is like you were just saying about progressives, and I wrote about this in the piece, too, like Donald Trump's election as president literally brought out this like far left, very progressive activist wing of the Democratic Party in a way that like I haven't seen, and I think in a way that a lot of people I haven't, haven't seen, seen right? In a long and time. and we see the power of protests and the way that people want the party to move farther to the left on many issues, especially inspired by Bernie Sanders and his platform. And so those folks are still running in these red swing districts. Um, it just like they're probably not as viable. Right. Um, but I've talked to progressives who are running in these districts and progressive groups who are helping candidates like that. And they sort of make the argument that like a couple of things. One is that districts might appear more red because a progressive has never run there before, mm-hmm. which is like pretty optimistic, but also fine. And then the other thing is, like, if you put a progressive candidate out in a red district, you're at least exposing voters to a new set of ideas and ideology than they have been exposed to in the past. And that in and of itself is beneficial. I'm one of those people, by the way, that believes that you could take a a practically a socialist Democrat, right, like just full on and put them in a red state. And I think that if they stick to their convictions, like they might actually do okay because – if you really get down to like, if you strip away the wishy-washiness that we've heard from democratic leaders over the last couple of election cycles going back to Bill Clinton you know there you, you just you look at these people uh, in these redder traditionally mm-hmm. redder districts and just say look you want health care we're going to give you health care right you want to send your kids to school and not break your back and have to work until you're 80 years old we'll do that today right, right? Yeah. And you know how we're going to do it because these people that are living high on the hog and that have uh taking advantage of you for all these years, they're going to pay more in taxes. Right. Yeah. And if they went out and they made that pitch, which is a very simple pitch, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you're making a lot of money. You need to pay more in taxes so that these people down here, they can get health care. They can send their kids to school. Right. Like, they don't have the these. They don't have to work three jobs just right. to find a way to pay for health care. I think that, like, that message resonates. And trying to be everything to everybody, which... Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, all of the Democratic leaders on the national stage, a lot of the Democratic leaders on the national stage that we've had over the years, that's what they've been. And it's just, you can't sell that message. Right. You can't sell that message. Right. Um, One other uh, topic I want to ask you about before we have to take a break, uh, gun control. Mm. Because we had the March for Our Lives last weekend. It's been a month and a half-ish since the shooting in Parkland, Florida. Um. How big of a role is gun safety, gun control going to play in these upcoming midterms, which are here, going to be here sooner than we know? I know. Well, especially there are a handful of really important primaries in May. Obviously, the rest are in August. I think we'll certainly see it then. I think this momentum is not going to end. We've seen a number of the survivors from the Parkland shootings considering openly taking a gap year from college and continuing this activism, which suggests even further that they're not giving up on this issue, right? It's not going to just get swept under the rug. Um, Another thing is, like, they, the kids all across the country have been so vocal about the fact that they are taking this issue to the voting booths, right? I saw a stat the other day that 4 million 
kids will turn 18 by the time the 2018 election comes around in November. Wow. And that, I mean, that's a very significant number. And I think that what we've seen in these rallies and and just the fact that like younger generations are more progressive and growing up in this so-called Columbine generation where you are always thinking about a school shooting Mm -hmm. or a mass shooting in a theater or something in a public setting. I think this is something that is they're keenly aware of and they're not willing to let it go. I think we, again, I mentioned earlier, we've seen the power of protest since Trump was elected. We saw that last weekend in the marches across the country. There were, I think, more than 800 across the world. And, um, you know, they they don't want to have representatives who don't align with them on gun control. And I wrote about that um, for Axios, too, that, like, the one thing that Democrats and Republican voters agree on on gun control is that they both in equal numbers, something like 67 percent each, want their representative to reflect their views on gun control. Okay. Which obviously, well, there are different views. Different, yeah, but. Um, but that means that people want to have elected officials who are serious about this, especially those on the left side who want stricter gun control. And. We'll see. For know? me, it's it, it's it's very, very, very simple. And it's something that, that these kids have hit on that are protesting and, like, the, the ones from Parkland that are specifically out in front. It's very, very simple. We have a problem with guns in this country. Right. And I don't care where you fall on the political spectrum. Yeah. You've got to admit that. Right. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I do think that even some Republicans are willing to admit we, we've got a problem with right. guns in this country. And so you've had lazy politicians over the years not get anything done on whether it's mental health or uh, stronger background checks or whatever it is right or outlawing right. assault whatever it is but you've, you've had lazy politicians just not get it done and these parkland students just like mm, <laughs> no you this yeah. is your job to get it done right there was a great moment at the town hall where marco rubio was essentially saying like look we had this assault weapons ban and there was a loophole and it made it really hard and they were like it's your job to fix it. Yeah, yeah. I think they get have up a... there and fix it, or we'll find somebody who will. <laughs> right. They have a zero tolerance policy, and I think that's great. And I like, do too. You know, I think the other interesting thing is, and like, I am certainly not calling for anything with NRA, sure, sure. but I think that the interesting thing is like the students are keenly aware of how much money the NRA is giving to these politicians. So while it is one thing to hold your elected officials accountable, it is another thing to then figure out like how to have productive conversations with the NRA and like see if they are willing to move on anything. They weren't willing to move on increasing the age limit from 18 to 21 to buy a firearm, which President Trump literally said himself he wanted to support until he met with someone from the NRA and then, shocker, he doesn't support it. (laughs) But he did support banning bump stocks, which, shocker, the NRA support. So clearly there's like this weird relationship, whether it's money or just whatever their influence. So I think that's the next step of it is like seeing how activists can push the NRA to have like more productive conversations, actually find common ground, and maybe expand their policy platform to include other things like, again, raising the age limit or yeah. things that they want. Uh, that is the voice of political reporter for Axios, Alexi McCammon. You can follow her on Twitter at Alexi and read her good, good work at Axios.com. Stick around for the rest of the hour. We'll be joined by Emily Atkin. She is from the New Republic. Uh, she is coming in here after a very, very quick break. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press. We'll be right back. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is. 
is the Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. Thank you for tuning in on this Friday, March 30th. We are on our way into the Easter weekend, uh, so I hope you have big plans. If you don't, spend some time catching up on Bill Press Podcast. We have a podcast coming out this weekend. It's a Q&A with Bill about his new book, uh, which is available. Uh, just go check it out uh, wherever you buy books. But we, I interviewed Bill about some stuff in the book, and we got questions. It was so good. We got questions from you. The yep. listener, the viewer, we we asked you for some questions. Anything you wanted to ask Bill, completely unfiltered. Uh, that podcast is coming out this weekend. So if you're not subscribed to the Bill Press Show on iTunes or anywhere else, uh, make sure that you do so. Uh, like I said, I am Peter Ogburn sitting in for Bill Press today. You can follow the show on Twitter at BP Show. You can follow me on Twitter at Peter Ogburn. However, yeah, it wouldn't follow me. I'd follow, <laughs> I'd follow the show first. Uh, but... I am the fill-in host. I brought in some smart people to help me through this final half hour. Uh, Alexa McCammon, uh, politics reporter from uh, Axios, remains with me for the last half hour. Hi, Alexi. Hi. And joining us, a science and environmental politics reporter for the New Republic, Emily Atkin. You can follow Alexi on Twitter, at Alexi. You can follow uh, Emily on Twitter at MRWE, E-M-O-R-W-E-E, and read her good work at newrepublic.com. Hi, ladies. Hi. How's it going? Pretty good. I wanted to bring in two women who I think are geniuses. Wow. Bonafide oh geniuses. God. Is it because I guessed correctly on the first try that St. Patrick's Day is the worst food holiday? St. Patrick's Day is the worst food holiday, and that is only one of the reasons that you're such a genius. But I bring that up because, Emily, recently, earlier this month, you wrote a piece that I saw got a lot of traction online about the sexism of the word genius. And this was all around the passing of Stephen Hawking, who, like... Literally every obituary I read. It I was... really, I really got raked over the men's rights subreddit for that piece. Oh my Did God. you really? Oh yeah, I'm not surprised. For real, yeah. Hell, men's rights meninists. Hell is <laughs> hell is men's rights activists. On I was wondering why oh, you yeah. called us geniuses, actually. I was like, is he going to bring up that piece? Because well, I actually <laughs> think that you were both very, very smart, but I wanted to sort of segue to your piece about the sexism of genius because every obituary I read about Stephen Hawking was Stephen Hawking, geni- comma, genius, or the genius of Stephen Hawking, and blah, 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 blah. And you wrote about why that sort of might be sexist. Why? Well, I'm not, first of all... Just caveat here. Good morning, everybody. Um, I didn't mean to throw you into the deep end here. Yeah, I'm not saying Stephen Hawking's not a genius. Fair. I really just want to put that out there. I do think that in the technical use of the term genius, Stephen Hawking was uh, for certain a genius. But um, I, I wrote this in the context of my work as a as a science reporter and somebody who uh, looks at social issues in science and one of the big remaining ones is still gender disparity in STEM, right? And what are the things, one of the biggest questions I ask myself in my reporting is uh, what are the things that are preventing us from getting um, the most, like the best research possible in the U.S., right? When you want diverse perspectives and you need them from women. And, um, I just basically used the piece as a historical look at who has been called genius in the past and who hasn't been called genius. And I actually looked at research about the word genius and how young children perceive that word. And research across the board shows that even kids as young as six will associate brilliance and the word genius with male peers Mm -hmm. and women, young 
girls won't are reluctant to use that word to describe themselves. Mm. And so I just wrote the piece to point out the way that we use certain terms um, and how perhaps the use of that word has uh, prevented some women from. I thought it was great. I thought it was a great piece. And I think like we're at a moment where, you know, obviously there are a lot of people that are getting sort of left behind and. Like, my biggest takeaway from the 2016 election was it is really, really, really easy to be completely sexist and get away with it. Mm. Uh, Breaking news. As a white man, I figured that out, everybody. (laughs) So you should all, like, this is a big deal. But, like, that, but it was so naked and so blatant in the 2016 campaign that, like, I, I had gotten used to people calling it out. Not everybody calling it out, but some people calling it out, and it wasn't called out. And so I think it's a good point that you raised. I mean, and I'm not saying that people who use the word genius are sexist, I, you sure. know? It's, right. it's, it's to point out um, the historical like use of the term in our society and just make people aware that there are multiple research papers that show the way that we've used this term in the past to describe only men, only mm-hmm. male celebrity scientist, white coat, very stereotypical. Yeah. Uh, scientists has actually been shown to harm young girls' perceptions of themselves as smart people. Yeah. And so then they are less likely to take up um, fields in the in STEM fields that are associated with brilliance, like physics, theoretical physics, like uh, like the field Stephen Hawking was in. They're more likely to go into things like archaeology, which is which is fine. Um, women in archaeology like more of them. But we want obviously generally we would want women to to feel that the sky is the limit to them. Yeah. Right. And there are so many of those implicit biases. You know, you speak about young women being conditioned not to go into certain STEM fields. We see that with, like, studies about any job. Like, if if women are looking at um, the list of qualifications for a job and they have four of the five, they're, like, maybe unwilling to apply. Whereas if a man is looking at it Mm -hmm. and he has, like, two of the five, he's like, oh, for sure, I'll apply. And, like, that, I think about that all the time. And I'm like, I'm going to do everything that I can do and, like, never tell myself I shouldn't because, like, Mm -hmm. men do whatever they want to do and we should be the same. Yeah, and it's just knowing knowing that that gets you to apply. (laughs) Sorry? Just just knowing that, like knowing that fact has gotten me to apply for jobs Yes, maybe I wasn't fully qualified Yes, yes. Sure. Like, oh, I have one of these things, I'm going to go for it. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many disheartening other aspects to this, not to be like the rainy cloud here. (laughs) There she is, Um, the black cloud. There she is, wet blanket ray. sunshine. Um, because there was a recent study that a lot of news outlets were writing about that um, very qualified, smart women actually were hired less uh, than mediocre achieving women, even. And even less than men who fall all across a spectrum of high achieving to low achieving to moderately achieving men. Um, So it's not always exactly a one-to-one comparison, like, do well, little girl, and you shall soar. Because also, (laughs) like, within the STEM field in general, I mean, there are all kinds of layers of bias right like mm-hmm. uh if you look at doctors for example the specialties that are predominantly staffed by women like pediatrics it's paid far less yeah. um or like if you look at stem in general oftentimes it's not necessarily just women and girls pursuing or having interest in stem it's that once they reach the lab they there are lots of different things that are keeping them from reaching that same level as the men 
That's crazy. And and this is something I'm like fascinated by in all fields too. Like my mm. undergraduate BA thesis was about women in political journalism and like their motivating factors for joining a field that is very male dominated and then like the sustaining factors that keep them in it and like there was a um, data I think the New York Times conducted looking at like women bylines across all of these different um, beats and like women were obviously represented in things like education and health and lifestyle but totally underrepresented in like news and world affairs and politics um, and then also like in journalism schools and grad programs it's like 70 percent women and then in the professional field it flips and it's like 40% women and a lot of 60% that, men. A lot of that, I think, has to do with the willingness of the existing hierarchical structure of both science and journalism, which is which is very male. So, like, mm -hmm. the hierarchy at the high-level people right now are mostly male in those fields, right? Right. And it has to do with the willingness of those at the top of the hierarchy, the men, to take on female um, mentees. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's just... You have to be lucky, I guess, right. as a woman to get a to get a male mentor in a very hierarchical field yes. like journalism, like science, and then get a male mentor who's not a total creep. Right. Yeah. Yes, especially this yeah. climate is what I'm going to say. Yes. Yeah. Me too. Yes. Every time I come in here, I talk about for the last two times I've I've talked about stories I've written about sexual harassment mm -hmm. and sexual misconduct in science. Because, I don't think those stories are going away. No, yeah. th they're not. And it's and it's extremely rampant. I mean, mm -hmm. and what we have is, is research there like showing that something like three quarters of women scientists have said that they've been sexually harassed uh, in the field or otherwise. By, and it's because That's of crazy. this hierarchical mm -hmm. society. I was very lucky uh, coming up in journalism and political journalism to have male mentors the whole time, older male mentors at uh, you know, higher up on the hierarchy, who were great to me, who right. their only their only motivation for helping me was to help my career. Right. And but it's sad that you characters that as being lucky. lucky. Yeah, it is lucky. Yeah. When you have somebody like Mike Pence saying that he can't even meet with a woman without <laughs> mother being present. I mean, think yeah. about the implication. Yeah, that's so well, well, it's, 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 it's funny, but it's a crying. huge point. No, Seriously, right, right. like. The vice president of the United States of America can't be alone with a woman in a room unless his wife is there. Like, setting mm. aside the sexism, think about how many political career careers that will stunt. Not even right. just stunt, but squash. Yeah. There is no chance that you can be a woman and succeed in this White House if you don't even have access to the people that you need to have access to. Right. I am. Um... I hesitate to even say anything because there are three, yeah. there are three <laughs> very smart women having a yeah, very Peter, like explain this to me. <laughs> okay, look, look, ladies. Here's what you're missing. Okay, here's what, here's what the real story is. Resident uh, men's rights <laughs> activist. Peter yeah, I'll, I'll explain it to you. Oh, God. oh uh, and one thing, one thing I do want to bring up is that a lot of people, even not the men's rights activists, when I published my story about genius and the way we use genius, the sexism of genius after Stephen Hawking's death. People accused me of using his death, you know, to promote oh my, my political agenda. agenda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just and I just wanted to point out that Stephen Hawking was not um, a fan of when people called him a genius. He thought he thought that it itself was a, oh, wow. you know, political sort of like. Stunt. Oh, interesting. Um, he was just like they just he said at one point, you know, people just want 
me on the like it's like a media portrayal of like the disabled genius he's like it's bs and then he also was somebody who spoke out you know for women's equality in stem and he's he once said that women are even smarter than men so i'm just (laughs) saying yeah just saying what he couldn't yeah after he passed exactly exactly. just saying what he said well (laughs) it's 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 a fascinating conversation that you started i'm glad that you started it and i'm and i i'm i'm sorry that you took all the grief for it that you did from men's rights activists but also that means you're doing something good that means you're doing the right thing yeah i would also just like to say that the chat room somebody said this is how peter's show always goes it ends up with the ladies telling us men how bad we are and i would like to say we are doing something right (laughs) but also yeah yeah yeah, that's okay That's all right. That's okay. First of all, I, like I, I, the, nothing makes me happier than having women come on and like take control of the show and 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 share that story. I love women. I have all their albums. I have binders full of women. <laughs> I have binders full of women. All right. That's we need funny. more women to come on and tell their show, their, their stories on the show. Yes. Um, but look, it's a important conversation, and it's also right. not going away. Right. That's the thing. It's just right. not going away. Uh, also, we're not necessarily saying what men are doing wrong. We're just pointing out these biases that maybe everyone participates in. And maybe it women are calling. Sure, totally. It should, it should bother you more as a man to hear, you know, people that you consider equals are being mistreated by other yes. men than yes. it should to hear yes. like a man did, and you're like, well, I'm a man. <laughs> 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 yeah, right. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, that's a very, very good conversation. Um, I, I do want to switch gears a little bit uh, because you, you also wrote about the conservative coddling of Scott Pruitt. Uh, you are the science and environmental reporter uh, at The New Republic. We've talked to you before about Scott Pruitt. Scott Pruitt, man, he's a weird one. I have a really hard time figuring out how he took over the EPA, which is an organization that he hates and would like to see done away with. Um, But, like, he's one of these conservatives, and there are several of them in the Trump administration that are just spending their way into oblivion. Like, they are just spending so much money. And like, what's the latest with Scott Pruitt? It's 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 only getting worse. The article that you cite, the conservative coddling, the illiterate alliterative headline of uh, of Scott Pruitt, had just has to do with the latest sort of version of Scott Pruitt defending himself over all these stories about him spending a lot of taxpayer money on first class flights. Um, so if I don't know if you've heard about that, but there have just been a number of stories uh, over the last couple of months spearheaded by The Washington Post um, that for basic domestic flights from, you know, D.C. to New York mm-hmm. uh, round trip, Scott Pruitt will spend something like two thousand dollars on a first class flight, um, you know, routine three thousand to four thousand dollar round trip flights to Oklahoma, Alabama, to do basically just media tours, promote the deregulatory regime. There was a high-profile trip he took to Rome for the G7 over the summer that was, you know, about a $120,000 trip involved a private military jet that cost, you know, something like $36,000 to take him from middle America to, you know, an airport on the coast and then, you know, uh, the first-class flight multiple thousands of dollars. She's a huge security entourage, stuff like that. Anyway, I wrote this story because the latest defense that Scott Pruitt has been using, he's been going on a conservative media tour, conservative radio tour, to say, well, you know, 
Obama's EPA heads, they spent a million dollars on travel, on international travel. And I only spent $100,000. So they've spent 10 times as much as me. <laughs> wow. What, what a hawk. And then, and then you know, the conservative hosts and all these outlets that have been publishing are like, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's that. the ticket. And one, one host, uh, Lars Larson, a guy based in Oregon, said something like, well, that sounds pretty conservative to me, you know? And the problem is... Lars Larson. The problem is, first of all, (laughs) it's 15 months into the Trump presidency, and I'm guessing that million dollars was over... Eight years. Eight years. Eight years, two administrators, 14 international trips, compared to one trip, one international trip that Scott Pruitt took once. And if you do his two international trips, that's actually $160,000, but who's counting? (laughs) Um, And... That story that, you know, Obama's EPA administrator spent a million dollars on travel over eight years, those are based on documents that EPA's political people shopped around to other journalists saying, like, hey, you should publish this story about Obama's <laughs> EPA people. Nobody took the story until Free Beacon took mm. the story. Then Fox News aggregated Free Beacon's story. And now Scott Pruitt is going on conservative radio touting this story as a defense. And, right. and it's a story that he created. And it's a story that's actually just disingenuous comparison because not only is it a eight-year Obama to one-year uh, Scott Pruitt comparison, the controversy is about his domestic travel. It's not about international travel. Right. We're talking about your first class trips to places that you don't need to take first class trips to. Right. We're talking about the fact that you use Delta Airlines all the time, even though that's not a preferred carrier of the United States government. You're talking about why do you always book really expensive hotels in domestically this isn't about international travel so it's a red herring it's disingenuous right. and i don't and the reason i wrote this piece is cuz i don't understand why i expect scott Pruitt to do this i don't understand why every single conservative media outlet just allows scott Pruitt to have this defense when they're the ones who are supposed to be advocating against taxpayer waste that's the purpose of conservative media i think there is a purpose for it you know they advocate for a certain class of yeah. of people so that was sort of my point just to be like WTF. <laughs> At what point does this uh, catch up with, or does it catch up with, some of these Republicans? Because Scott Pruitt is not the only person who's been accused of this and has been doing this. Like, it's pretty rampant in the in the Trump cabinet. So, like, Republicans had built this whole narrative of of being spending hawks and you know deficits are bad, and Barack Obama because he took a vacation with his family and his mother-in-law came along should be impeached because it's too much money. Like, at what point does this catch up with with them politically, Alexi? I or, mean, do, or does it? I don't know if it does. You know? I think, like, I think the numbers are staggering, especially with Scott Pruitt. I think the Ben Carson story is interesting, but I think most people look at that and they're sort of like, well, Ben Carson won. What have you even been doing at HUD? I didn't know you were still working. Ben Carson has not opened his eyes since <laughs> the election. Like, he has kept his eyes closed the entire time that he's been Yes, and, like, I mean, it just seems like it Meanwhile, just Betsy seems DeVos foolish. has not closed hers since, yeah. the, since the election. But yeah. anyway, go ahead. It just, see, I, it just seems foolish and reckless, and I think that's how people view it, right? Like whether it's Scott Pruitt just like seemingly not understanding that these things are maybe not what you should be doing or Ben Carson being like, I didn't know the price of this $31,000 dining room table. Oh, wait, my wife did it. Oh, wait, I don't know what happened. Oh, like, wives. Yeah. Oh, wives, right? ladies like, be shopping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know how they be like. <laughs> 
So I don't know. I don't know what people care about anymore. I think like this is not gonna affect them. Well, it's so funny because when uh, God, I'm playing Tom Price with the HHS, like. The stories came about, about uh, came out about him spending too much on travel, and that was enough to get him fired. No, it wasn't, because Trump already didn't like him. Sure, And fair. Trump yeah. loves Scott Pruitt. I mean, there's this new campaign by, uh, you know, Sierra Club, NRDC, Green for All, to hashtag boot Pruitt, and they bought all these ads on, you know, Morning Joe. You might even see it. We have Morning Joe up right now. Um, I'm you know, sorry, saying, I, I have to interrupt because on CNN, John Bolton's sweet stash stealing the spotlight. Well, now it is. Oh, CNN. Excuse me, excuse me. He is a war drunk old man. Like, I'm sorry, we don't have to praise his mustache choice. Anyway, yeah, I'm sorry. That, I'm, I'm that's sorry. not objective journalism. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that completely threw me. Yeah, that's that's really funny. Uh, and there's, is that Yosemite Sam? That is Yosemite okay. Sam. Right. Yeah, Yosemite cool. Sam. But yeah, I'm just saying, you know, this this campaign to kick Pruitt out of office, you know, gaining it's on national television now, spending all this money in these groups. I don't know. I mean, listen, I, maybe it'll mobilize some people to be like, yeah, I should be against this guy or something. But also, I feel like Trump is just going to love it. I mean, he's yeah. gonna, he already liked Scott Pruitt. I think he's going to, you know, take him by the... You know, take him by the neck and pull him even closer. Be like, yeah, that's my guy. Yeah, I got all the libs against you. You know, spending us into oblivion to own the libs. And Scott, and Scott Pruitt, I mean, is widely considered to want to run for office one day to have high, much higher political ambitions. Potentially, want to run for president. There's this campaign to boot him out of office. I just, I can just see the campaign ad now. Yeah. You know, a year from now, it's just with Scott Pruitt's face, just like. Liberal environmentalists tried to kick me out of office to prevent law and order at the EPA. They failed. That's that's pretty that's solid. That's very good. That's a very, very Thank good. Thank you. Idea. I appreciate it. Okay, I, unfortunately, we're out of time, ladies. Oh I mean, on that note, we're going to have right. to leave it there. By the way, the comment of the day came from the chat room when we're at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Please send Donald Trump a copy of this video to show him how smart women who are not submissive, to show him smart women who are not submissive, at least not politically. Huh? See? So, Alexi, oh, uh, Emily, Ray, thank you. having a good you. time. Great, great show. We'll see you on Monday. This is the Bill Press Show.